0: So if you weren't here last week, we started a new series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Um, funny story, uh, if you were here last week, I was a little, you know. Um, so this week, on Monday morning, I woke up with a, a pretty severe pain in my neck. And I went to the doctor on Wednesday. I have a pinched nerve. Uh, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was taking muscle relaxers. Um, so I feel... I can turn my head. That's that's the extent of it, but I, you know. So if I look like Peyton Manning up here, that's why. Anyhow, um, so I woke up this morning, and the first thought was, don't take muscle relaxers, because that would be an extreme opposite of what we had last week, right? I'd be like, turning your Bibles to... Anyhow, so we're good. My neck is fine. I'm normal. So, uh, so we started last week, Ephesians chapter 1. We did verses 1 through 10, and uh, we opened with um, <clears throat> Paul declaring himself an apostle by the will of God. And so we had a conversation about what it means when he says the will of God. And we have to, when we see that term, the will of God in Scripture, we have to answer the question, what is he referring to? Because there are two different ways that the writers of the Scriptures will refer to the will of God. And so there's the will of, of command where God's saying... Um, I want you to do this, this is my will. Or there's the will of decree, where God says, I am doing this, this will happen. So we have to understand when we see that term, will of God, what is it? Is it the will of command or the will of decree? And so we went to a couple other places in Galatians and in the book of Acts to see what Paul's talking about. Is he talking about the will of command or is he talking about the will of decree? Did God command Paul to be an apostle or did God say, you're an apostle? Right? And so as we looked at the other scriptures surrounding Paul and his life and his conversion, we came to the conclusion that what Paul was referring to in that verse is the will of decree. God made Paul an apostle. Paul didn't choose it. In fact, Paul's will was going in the 180 degrees the opposite direction. Right? We talked about the fact that, that, that Paul was actively persecuting, actively killing, actively persecuting the church, when he met Jesus, and then he became a follower of Jesus and became an apostle. So then from there, we went into the doxology that Paul goes into after his greeting and talked about what he is saying there, and we talked about um, what a doxology is. We sing the doxology at the end of every service here, Um, and so it was fun to kind of talk about what, what is a doxology. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of worship about who God is. So when we sing the doxology, we are... Preaching the truth to ourselves through song and declaring those truths about who God is to God, and so at the beginning of Ephesians we see that what, well, that's what Paul was doing, and he's going to continue a little bit in our passage today. So I wanted to talk about something else really quick before we get into the sermon. Uh, we had some we had a really good conversation in my small group on Thursday night um, about liturgy and um, what some certain things that we do in church that seem to be just. Yeah, yeah, we do this every Sunday and we don't know why. Well, part of like our conversation last week about doxologies and then our conversation in a small group about um, liturgies, there are things that we do on Sunday mornings, there are things that we do in our lives that we do, that we form habits, that, and those habits help sh- shape our lives. Does that make sense? So uh, David, when David uh, leads worship, a lot of times between songs, he will read a scripture and then he will say, let us come to the Father through the Son, and by the Spirit. And so what he's doing when he says that, every single Sunday, every single Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, he's declaring something to himself and to us and to God that this is how we come to the Father. We come to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. He's reminding us of a truth that we believe, and we remind ourselves of those things over and over and over. That's the same thing that we're doing when we sing the doxology at the end of the service. We're reminding ourselves of a truth. It's the same thing that we do when we take communion every week. It's a a liturgical act that we do in order to remind us of the truths that we believe. And so we're going to talk about that kind of as we go through this passage. So today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll go from 11 to verse 23. And here's another thing that we do liturgically at Grace. We stand and read the Word of God. So if you would stand with me. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. So as we read through that passage, um, you can see what we talked about last week in several different places. Uh, He says, he starts out, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the will of decree, right? So we see it littered all throughout this passage. But here's what I want to focus on today. Um. How much of our lives, your life, my life, as we engage in work, play, um, Instagram, Facebook, like as we live our lives, including all these things, how much of our time and our effort and our energy is it spent trying to be accepted? A lot, right? Most of us don't walk through life actively not caring about what others think of us. Now, we care to varying degrees, right? But, but we all care about being accepted. Now, um, it's, it's long been said, I don't know if this is actually true, but it's long been said that the number one fear is public speaking. Some of you are like, yeah, and others are like, I don't care, I'll do it, right? But like, it's long been said that that's the number one fear in, in uh, our society. Now, here's what I want to ask. Is it the fear of public speaking, or is it the fear that we will speak publicly and be rejected? Right? So it's not necessarily the public speaking that we're afraid of. It's the rejection that might come from that. Does that make sense? Because we want to run from rejection, and what are we running to? Acceptance, security, and love, right? So much of our lives is spent doing this. And I would argue that this is, this is what we were created. We were created to be accepted and loved. We were not created for rejection. And so this is a, right, this is a God-shaped hole inside of us. This is a hole that nothing else can fill, but we are actively trying to fill it. So, um, Tim Keller, he's a smart guy. He said, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. And it is what we need more than anything. Like at our core, being in loved, fully known, and fully accepted. Fully known and fully accepted. How many of, how many of you in this room uh, are fully known? You don't have to raise your hands. If you're new, we've had some issues with hand-raising, like, right? Um, You're not laughing because you don't know what I'm talking about. Everybody else does. (laughs) Uh, Fully known. Fully known. It's a scary thought. Like your deepest, darkest secret. Or plural. All of them. Known. Now, the idea that you could be fully known, right? Completely, no secrets, no darkness, no shadows, and still be fully loved. If that doesn't make you breathe a sigh of relief, I don't know what will. But that's what we have in God. Going back to verses five through six, it says he, in love, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, One of the commentaries that I read this week actually said another way to say the ending there is to say by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The blessing that we have in Christ Jesus is that we are fully known and fully loved. Right? We talked last week about he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. We are fully known and fully loved by Jesus Christ. And then he goes into a song where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's part of his worship where he's, saying, he's, he's stating a fact. He's not saying, is, you know, is God blessed? Or, hey, we need to bless God. He's saying, God is blessed. He who has blessed us, chosen chosen us, predestined us, adopted us, redeemed us, and forgiven us. So here we come to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So when he says, who are the first to hope in Christ, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites, the Jews, right? So, this is, let's go to the book of Acts really quick. Going away from Paul, going to Peter. Paul's preaching the gospel because he was commanded by the Holy Spirit in a dream to go preach the gospel to some Gentiles, which he had never done and never thought to do because Christ died for the chosen nation of Israel, right? So, verse 13, in him, he's preaching. Now, in him, also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Wrong passage. Sorry, we're not there yet. <laughs> so they were, what were they? What were they? What does it say? They were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed now, if we were to look up, like, what is it, What would a seal mean to them? Like, they didn't have like you didn't lick envelopes and seal them, right? They had they melted wax, and the king or whoever had a, a ring and they would seal it. And that seal meant that it belonged to them. Like, this letter, this document, whatever it is, belongs to that person whose seal is on it. It was possession, it was ownership. Now. So the same thing that happened to the Jews in Acts then happened later to the Gentiles. And it says that Peter was in awe that the Gentiles were now receiving the Holy Spirit. Who was what? Their seal, their guarantee. In Christ, we talked about this last week, this idea that we are in Christ is the most repetitive truth in the whole first chapter. Fourteen different times it says it in the first chapter alone that we are in Christ, in Jesus, in the beloved, in Christ. St. Patrick said this, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, and Christ above me. Totally surrounded, totally sealed, totally accepted by the love of God. You and me. fully known, and fully loved. But sometimes we go back to the garden, right? And when I mean the garden, I mean Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and they heard God in the garden, what did they do? They hid. And what else did they do? They saw their nakedness, and they sewed fig leaves together to make clothes. They hid in their shame. And humankind has been doing it ever since. So this idea that now we are fully known and fully loved. There is no shame. We're still going to work close because the world is broken. But there is no more shame. The shame has been removed. The guilt has been removed. And we can come into the Holy of Holies. If you, if you know, uh, are familiar with the Old Testament temple and how that worked and the barriers and the rules that they had to follow, we now can come into the Holy of Holies in confidence before the throne room of God because we are in Christ. We are fully known and fully loved. In the Old Testament, the priests had to go through this crazy purification process before they went into to light the incense in the holy place, or else they would die. So we can walk into that space with confidence because we have been purified, forgiven, fully known, and fully loved. It's the most amazing truth in all of Scripture that we are fully known and fully loved by God. In verse 13, we see the seal that we are sealed with is what? It's God himself. Like we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that has for eternity been one with God the Father and one with the Son. He puts us in himself. We are in Christ. The same spirit that was present and working in the creation of the universe. The same spirit lives in us. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Right? Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? The guarantee, the Holy Spirit in you and in me is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. The guarantee. That's nuts. Right? There's no, be a good Christian, Sam. He's the guarantee. That's amazing the promise that we are fully known and fully loved and will be for all time. There is no rejection. And so this is what I have to remind myself every day that I screw up and I'm mean to my wife, impatient with my kids, patient with you guys. Not really. I would never do that. My my instinct is to hide. Ask my wife. My instinct is to go inward with my shame and to avoid being fully known because my fear is that if I was fully known in that moment, I wouldn't be fully loved. And we still do this. And so we have to remind ourselves of these truths daily. We have to remind ourselves of what exactly the love of Jesus accomplishes daily because if we don't, we will retreat back to our former self we will go back to the garden and we'll start to sow those fig leaves. But Jesus said to come to him. We're fully known and fully loved. John 6, verse 37 says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Deuteronomy 31, let's go back to the Old Testament. It is the Lord who goes before you, and he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Somebody else said that in the New Testament. Who was it? Oh, yeah, it was Jesus. Do not fear or be dismayed. Fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved. I'm saying that a lot because I want us to understand exactly what Paul is trying to get across. Jesus was rejected by man, crushed physically and spiritually on the cross. Why? So that we could be fully known and fully loved. To take away all of the guilt and all of the shame. All of it. Why? So that God might be glorified. So that God might be glorified. So God might be seen as loving. Right? This is why verse 14 ends like all the others to the praise of his glory. That's why all these things are happening to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. knowing we're in Christ, knowing that he is in us. He is the guarantee of our salvation. Now, that word, knowing, is where Paul's going to go next, right? Verses 15 through 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That word, knowledge of him, I guess it's three words, knowledge of him is really key because that's the spirit. Who's he talking to here? Are these believers or non-believers that Paul is writing this letter to? Believers. He's writing it to a church, right? So what he's talking about here is not Um, having their eyes open so they might be saved. They're already saved. This is the church. What he's talking about here is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Why would he say that to people that are already saved? Because we forget. Because we forget. We are fickle human beings, and we forget, and we drift. And so Paul is saying, I want your eyes to be opened even more. I want you to grow even more in the knowledge of his love and grace. Think about this. Like, as as wonderful as this truth is, that we are fully known and fully loved in Christ, the idea that I can grow in that knowledge. Think about that for a second. Like, I don't know that to the fullest extent that I can possibly know it. I don't. I know it to the extent that I know it right now. And Paul's prayer for them is that they would increase in their knowledge of what Christ has done for them. That their eyes would be opened more fully to the love that God has for them because God's love is so big that that we don't get it. So he says, my prayer for you is that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, um, fancy word, church word, theology, right? Anybody want to take a stab? What does theology mean? Yeah. It's the study of God. Now, we can learn theology in two ways. We can learn it according to man's brain knowledge, or we can increase in the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. We study him, we pursue him, we chase after him. And he has given us ways to do this. Prayer, the scriptures, worship. These are ways that we pursue the God who fully knows us and fully loves us. This is our response to that. These aren't requirements according so that you can be loved. You already were loved. So that our response is to pursue him in these ways. Now, how does that happen? Right? Because here's here's the... So you hear, yes, I'm fully known and fully loved. This is the most amazing truth in the history of the universe, right? So I know it, and yet Paul is praying that I would increase in that knowledge and increase in the knowledge of him and in wisdom. How do I do that? He's about to tell us. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness Of him who fills all in all. So, Paul is praying that we would know more fully what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's what he's praying. How? According to the working of his great might. So, how are my eyes opened? according to the working of his great might. The same power, right? And here, he's going to give us five examples of how this power works. Verse 20. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What? So the same power that raised Jesus from the grave now lives in me. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. The same power. The same spirit. Now why can't I raise people from the dead? That's another conversation. But that power to live the Christian life lives in you. And the fact that that spirit is there is your guarantee. That is the seal. The spirit being present in you is the seal that God owns you. You belong to him. You are a child of the Most High King, the creator of the universe. You belong to him. What this means, though, is that death has been defeated. We still die. But once. It doesn't, this doesn't mean that we don't physically die, but what it does mean is that physical death no longer has any teeth. It means we no longer have to be afraid of it. Imagine yourself breaking into a building. None of you would do this, right? But you can imagine. You're breaking into a building, and around the corner comes the pit bull, right? And he's running for you, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I got nowhere to go. I'm backed into the alley. You've seen this TV show, movie, or whatever, right? You're backed into the alley, and here comes the dogs. They get up to you, and they start to snarl, and all you see is gums, right? What happens to your fear? It's gone. Trust me. There's gum in you. That's death. Right? This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. What victory? Jesus raising from the dead. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, death has no hold over us. There is no fear. And there are certain things about our faith, you guys, that the world sees as crazy. But they also find very, very attractive. When we live our lives in this victory, we hear hear this word all the time. We have victory, victory, victory right when we live our lives in the victory of what Christ did in us fearlessly we have we literally have nothing to fear the world sees that because it's not normal it's normal to fear death but we know that we are guaranteed an eternal life with Jesus through him the second thing that this power did is it seated Jesus at his right hand. Look at verse 20. What does it say? It seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to see next week in Ephesians chapter 2 that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wait. So the power that, that, that seated Jesus at the right hand of God is also lift, going to lift us up to seat us in the same place. That's pretty awesome. This is the power that lives in us. This is the spirit that lives in us. Number three, God set Jesus all over all the de- demonic powers. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It means that Jesus' name will be ultimate for eternity, starting Now, there is no other power that can defeat him. In Ephesians 6, it talks about rulers and authorities. We're going to get to what specifically he's kind of referencing here. In Colossians chapter 2, which is kind of a parallel to Ephesians, he says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now, we're talking about demons. We're talking about the spirit world, which we don't talk about that often, right? Um, C.S. Lewis, most of you know where I'm going with this. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is, uh, which is a, a book written, this is really weird, right? It's, a, it's a, like a lieutenant demon writing to a uh, lower rank demon and giving him advice about how to deal with humans and Christianity. It's really interesting. Very good read. Anyhow, this is one of the things he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that's us, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same light. So I think we often for me I often come back to this statement to, to kind of go, okay, am I if I'm, am I not giving the dominions of this world enough attention and credit for the evil that they're producing? Or am I giving them too much? But we have to understand that these things exist. They exist. And they are working in our world as we speak. Satan and his forces have one goal to defeat you by any means necessary. And here's what's interesting, I think, is that uh, we don't see a lot of open demonic stuff here in America, do we? I mean, it'll happen every now and then. But it doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. If you go to Haiti, if you go to Africa, if you go to different parts of the world, you're gonna, if you go to Southeast Asia, you're going to see some gnarly stuff if your eyes are open. Really gnarly. But in America, it really seems like Satan has used another tactic, tactic that's been just as successful. Wealth. Fame prosperity, we have been lulled to sleep by the powers of this world. And I think sometimes we have to wake up and we have to look at what is actually going on around us. And as we read the Bible, I think it becomes very, very, very clear. But we have confidence that Jesus is more powerful. And ultimately, I think that what we're going to see in the years to come in our culture is a radical returning to Christ. I really believe that. I think the stage is set. I believe it's going to happen. Because I believe that the name of Jesus is more powerful And then number four, it says that he gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Verse 22, he says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, two things that he says here. First is that he is the head over all things, right? All things, all authority, all dominion, all power, Jesus. And the second great thing about this is that he gave him as head over all things to who? To us. That means that we have an authority that we can follow that will never be defeated. That we now have been given the access to and the ability to follow the one who will never be defeated, who has already won. And then, number five. Where God rules, we rule. Now, we have to really start to define what that word means, right? Because this can take us to some bad places. Where God rules, we rule. In verse 23, it says, His body, the fullness of all, who fills all in all. Who's all? Us. The fullness of Him. Him who fills all. Us in all. Where he rules, we rule. Now, how did Jesus rule? By serving. By being taken advantage of, by being rejected. Knowing that he was fully accepted. This isn't some weird thing where the church rules and we're going to win, right? Yes, we will. But in the same way that Jesus' victory looked, the church's victory looks. We are called to be humble servants, not bigots, not the religious elite. This is where it starts to get hard, right? And this is where we've been lulled to sleep by our culture, thinking that success in, in what it means to be the church looks like Britney Spears, Right? Now, you might go, wait, what? But, I mean, look around our country. Right? The most successful pastors are the ones with 50,000 people in their opponents that are plastered all over TVs. Those are the successful ones. And if we would do ministry right, we would look like that, right? Our church would grow like that if we were doing everything correct, right? That's success, right? According to America, that is success. What happened every time Jesus got big crowds following him? He said something super controversial, and they all split. I'm not about to say anything controversial, I don't think. But we know from the ministry of the one who we now follow that that's not what success looks like. And yet we clamor after it. We clamor after it in our jobs. We clamor after it in our ministries. We clamor after it in every area of our our life. If I am just more known, if I am seen as more successful, how about fully known and fully loved? Amen? His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Ultimately, He he will fill creation with His fullness. The day is coming where Jesus returns and the entire creation will be filled to the brim, overflowing with the fullness of his glory. And you and I will be there to see it and enjoy it for eternity. How do I know that? Because we have been sealed with his spirit. We are in Christ. The Bible tells us so. and I believe it. Now, this is really fun on Sunday mornings, right? And it feels good. We're being reminded of the truth, and this will get us through a couple of days. But you and I both know that Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, next week, next month, the day is going to come when you receive that phone call, when you have that conversation. The day that your life falls apart. The day that everything that you know in this life crumbles. Another quote I came across this week from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Talking about God. He wants them to learn to walk and therefore must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Wormwood's the name of the demon. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. this is the victory that we have been called to. Read through the New Testament. Read about the martyrdom of the apostles and all the different people. What, what was Stephen saying as he was being stoned to death? Forgive them. This is why, you guys, we have to daily Remind ourselves of these truths. Remind ourselves of the victory that we have, the guarantee that we have, the inheritance that we have in Jesus because the moment we take our eyes off of him and look at the world, we're just like Peter. Remember, Peter's walking on the water. It says he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind and the waves and he, sh- he sank. You guys, we cannot take our eyes off of Jesus. And it happens, doesn't it? We sink, and then we come back, whether it's a conversation with a friend, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's a small group, whether it's in the Scriptures, in the Word, or whether it's in prayer, where we're reminded, and we come back to the cross. But then Monday happens. Tuesday happens. Wednesday happens. Life happens. And all of a sudden, we're drifting again. And we tell ourselves these truths. We preach ourselves these truths So that when the world falls apart, our faith remains. Our faith is the rock. Our faith is the anchor that holds us when everything else is going who knows where. The fact that we are fully known and fully loved. Everyone else can reject you. They rejected him. He will never reject us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We are fully known and fully loved by the only one that matters. Amen? We're going to sing some more. And as we do that, I would invite you to just settle, settle in to this fact, settle into the idea that Jesus loves you and he knows you more fully than anyone could. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. And yet he loves you. And then come forward and take communion. The body that was broken, the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. This is a simple illustration of the truths that we are talking about. We are fully known and fully loved.